Hello, world weavers, and welcome back to the Atlas Loom, an exploration of world building for tabletop and beyond. My name is Diana Faye, better known as Diana the Rose, one half of the hosts of this wonderful podcast, the other half of which uh, is Endeavorance, a man who speaks 17 languages, but 16 of which summon ancient eldritch beings, so he cannot use them. How's it going, Deb? <laughs> no, buddy. No, it's okay. We did this last week. We can't do this again. <laughs> I already told the exorcist to go home. This is not. You know, it, the problem the problem is that when you when you speak as many languages as I do, English just gets boring after a while. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't have the same sort of grammatical structure as the like ancient eldritch dragon speak. Yeah. Right? Like that you can actually string together sentences without much effort and things just make sense. But in English you might have phrases like oi, govna? What the fuck does that even mean? Yeah. Who's yep. the governor of what place? <laughs> this is a world building podcast. This is. Welcome back. We're uh, not world building languages, contrary to what this intro would lead That's to. That's not. Yeah, this is not the language episode. <laughs> what, we <laughs> Are we going to have a language episode? Uh, Please I, say I, no. I mean, languages exist in worlds, do they not? Oh, I don't want to do a language episode. It's just going to be a bastardization of French or something like that if I have to world build a language. That's not my thing. Parlez-vous, <laughs> Diana. You don't even speak French. I so don't like you, speak French. Yeah, right? I, I don't even speak Spanish. And I'm fucking Latina. I, I'm you, I, I legitimately thought that you spoke Spanish. Like, I thought that that was like a thing. No, really? Really? Oh, no. I'm whitewashed as fuck. I don't oh. speak Spanish. I understand. So here's what I tell people is I can eavesdrop in Spanish. Mm. Um, I took like five years of it in middle school, high school and whatnot. And I grew up around it. But I never was taught how to speak it by my mom. My mom's Mexican. And so I can like listen to her half of telephone conversations and listen to her half of like the gossip and stuff like that. Just like while I'm in the next room, just like doing dishes or whatever. I'm like, Oh, okay. I didn't know that happened with her wife, with, with her wife or husband or whoever, uh, you know, just kind of listening to my mom's drama. And also when she talks about me, like she doesn't think I can listen. I can hear I know everything (laughs) mother, but no, I don't speak it. Uh, If Diana's mom is listening to this podcast, all of the secrets are out. This is, this is where we keep the secrets. Uh, also, I'm glad to know that my mother, who is not Mexican, um, also did not teach me Spanish. Uh, so I guess you and I are pretty much on the same page there. We're basically the same person. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, this episode, uh, not about languages. It's not, actually... Not even sort of. No, uh, it's about plagiarism light, basically. <laughs> okay, well, hold, hold on. <laughs> it's about how We're... not to do a plagiarism We're at other people plagiarizing. while absolutely stealing from everywhere right we're gonna be going over how you can take vital concepts from popular media other games you know anything basically and transform it into something that you can use for your world be it a plot point a creature an overarching concept entire systems of things like magic or languages or anything like that um which is no languages yeah uh, i won't do the languages that's on you i have seen some really cool like language concepts though like where I, I'll go on Reddit occasionally and people will have drawn up entire dictionaries for things like for D&D Thieves Cant or, you know, Druidic. Oh, my God. I I love that sort of stuff. I don't read it because I hate languages. I just copy and paste it into my reference document. And I'm like, all right, nabbed. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Yoinked. Uh, I think the term that we should use as opposed to lie, cheat, steal and, and thievery and plagiarism, we should probably go with yoink. Yoink. Yoink is probably the right level of of playful and non-aggressive, this is mine now. <laughs> yeah. 
Welcome to the Yoink episode of the Atlas Loom. Welcome to the Atlas Yoink. The Atlas Yoink. That sounds, why does that sound? That's going in the bonus episode. Okay. Yep. 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 All right. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about stealing and I want to talk about, I want to, on the, on the, on the, on the outset, let's just get this out of the way first, because the rest of this, the rest of this episode should be like asterisked, you know, this is the, this is the upfront asterisk. Plagiarism bad do not do a plagiarism do not take something that someone else did and pass it off as your own that's bad h bomber guy told me that there's a few different contexts for actually running a table right like there's not everybody here is running an actual play and 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 in that case when you're just running a home game just a standard table with friends it's a very different set of rules for what you can and can't pass off as kind of your own right if you're playing to a group of people it doesn't really matter where you took something from. The point is that they're having a good time. I would still highly recommend that you tell them, oh yeah, did you like that? The inspiration came from this, or I took it from here. If you want more of that, check this out. Like still do the kindness of crediting people. Oh, yeah. Obviously, if you're doing some sort of public art, like an actual play or a podcast or, or whatever, absolutely credit things. And also if you are taking something, you probably don't want it to be a wholesale just pluck and and plop. You know, you, you should take the inspiration, make it your own, and even still credit your inspiration. I want to say that out front. This right. is not an episode about thievery and plagiarism. This is an episode about how to properly take that inspiration and slot it into your world. With all that said, I want to talk about Avatar, the last airbender one, not the not the blue alien one. Got it. Okay, my journey in like world building at large started from being inspired by Avatar. And it wasn't even, when you think about Avatar, like the last airbender universe, you think about the, the four nations, the concept of bending, the concept of the spirit world and all that stuff and how it all comes together to create, they've made a pretty good world. It's fun, it's easy to understand, it's approachable, it, it really works well. I, I think it's a great job. But that's not what inspired me to get into world building. What got me into world building, and I didn't even realize it at the time because I was just a wee lad, was the sense of adventure that was that's portrayed in that series, especially the fact that they have Appa, their flying bison, that they fly over vast swaths of ocean to various islands and continents and whatnot. They, they make it clear that there is a big scale that they're working with there and they're setting off on an adventure they they show in the show they're out of supplies they need to go find a market that's nearby where are we we have no idea this is not where we're used to being we're on an adventure right now and so that that sense of a journey that sense of travel is what got me interested in world building to very start basically i wanted to set out and make a game i wanted to make a video game which is one of my biggest passions i wanted to make a video game that evoked that same sense anyway I was very young and could not actually make that game because I didn't know how, but I tried and it didn't work. And that's how I got started with world building. Is by stealing the idea of a large open world and wanting to build off of that. Basically. And it's, gotcha. it's that this is what I'm saying from taking inspiration from things, right? I didn't, I didn't set out to make a world that had four elements and people who can control the four elements. I set out with, here's a, a feeling that I like that this, piece of media gives me this sense of adventure, this sense of journey. I want to replicate that. Yeah. And that's where I started. 
it's really the entire process of stealing you know yoinking things just comes from taking something and breaking it down into its bare bones values bare bones story arcs bare bones concepts and i i use this example a lot mostly in cut segments of the atlas loom uh but <laughs> i reference john wick a lot as like my go-to this is something i want to rip off i want to yoink from uh breaking it down you know you have this man he's a master assassin something happens to him he goes on this massive revenge arc but if you look at the world as a whole the john wick fucking cinematic universe uh bare bones you have it's a secret society of assassins that is embedded within everyday culture that has subsections based on different social classes different parts of the world different cultures you know the bowery king runs the homeless appearing part of the assassin network you know you have the ruska roma who are like this this extended family of assassins they're all occupy the same space but they all have one defining trait imagine bringing that into your ttrpg world right you have you know rogue classes in most fantasy style games or at least something inspired by the idea of a rogue or an assassin taking that concept and being like oh yeah you know obviously an assassin belongs to a network of other assassins you know this thief belongs to a thieves guild anything like that but flavoring it so that that guild that organization is part of something a little bit more inconspicuous and something that you wouldn't expect these everyday people who are massively talented at doing very bad things that's a cool concept. So that's like one example of this kind of mental pathway that I take when it comes to plagiarize. I keep wanting to say plagiarizing. If you're my fifth grade English teacher watching this right now, um, please, Miss Anderson, uh, don't come for me. I swear I learned. <laughs> but things like that where you're just like, okay, grand concept, strip it down to its bare bones thing, reflavor it, shove it into your world. I think in addition to intentionally taking a structure like that, which has... I think a bit more specificity to it. I think the the assassins clan underground society thing, that's a good angle to approach. Could there be anything, are... dude. Imagine fucking druids as just everyday people mm. hidden in. And like, that's the thing. Take one component of it, switch it out for something else. Absolutely. Instantly you have a brand new unique idea that no one else has seen for your world and that no one would suspect to you. Because honestly, a large part of what I do when I'm trying to like, yoink things for my world is disguise it enough so that my players don't realize what the source material is so mm -hmm. i have many many thoughts okay so you <laughs> i absolutely agree take a thing change a thing put it back in your world i talked about that on that recent tiktok i did about how i was like i want a sky kraken kraken go in water i want kraken in sky yeah and that's a thing that i did and it's fun and beyond that you can also take an existing very basic concept there are there are plenty of things that you're going to have to essentially bring in at some point because it's more or less unavoidable in storytelling and especially when running a tabletop campaign like you're gonna have like go collect this MacGuffin to stop some bad guy like that's that yeah. is a plot that's gonna happen probably but taking on the topic of taking a established concept and tweaking it just a little bit an example that I did for that that I thought was very very fun and let me do what i let me do a trope that i didn't want to do normally like it the trope is overdone and i, I just didn't want to be another one of those which was a zombie apocalypse right Ooh. like there's a million zombie apocalypse stories i, I didn't i didn't want to just do zombie apocalypse and so i said okay what's what's a zombie well it's it's an entity that's like post-human or you know post-life 
that is walking around making more zombies by doing something. And so I took that and instead of a zombie that wants blood, that wants to eat brains, that bites you and you become a zombie, I came up with a concept of a, I called them lumens. So they are the shape of a humanoid, but they are essentially just protruding. They're just extruding light constantly. They're just emanating light. If you look at them directly, they just look like a being made of light. And mm. what they are is a, essentially the soul has been removed from the host of the soul. So it is a body that is still sentient, that life itself is the only thing propelling it anymore. And the soul that was consuming that life to produce a person has been removed. And so it is now just a husk of unbridled life, which is kind of the opposite of a zombie. But what these things do is they're seeking some kind of soul. And so they are attracted to anything that has a soul still, and they're trying to remove it from you, which ultimately turns you into a lumen. That's On top so of that, cool. I added just a little little extra thing where whenever you killed one, they like detonated in a like, I don't know, 15 foot radius just to just to add a little bit of extra flavor and make it not just be like they're dead now. Very fun concept. It allowed me to have them break out into the world even better. Uh, they also made like a, a ominous bell chime. Like that's how they communicated was like it sounded like church bells. And so you would just hear like ringing church bells off in the distance when they were looming nearby and like encroaching on you. And that let me do a, a zombie apocalypse, but it wasn't zombies. You know what this is? This is like a Mad Libs method of world building mm. where you just like take something, you know, write down a paragraph of some well-known trope, some well-known concept, something that you took from some other form of media, scratch out the nouns, scratch out the actions, and then fill in new ones. And then there you go. You have a concept. Absolutely. That's, that's so that's such an easy way to break it down into like something usable. Like a, a theory, a, a framework. That's what you could do, audience. That's how you yoink. That is how you yoink. <laughs> a skill that I find to be super useful if you are running a table is essentially learning to do that on your feet. And hmm. the more you do it, the more just things in your pocket you're going to have to pull out. And this sort of maybe teeters a little too much into like how to how to improvise. But in the same way that you when you're designing a story that you're going to tell at a, at a table, especially you want to kind of have major plot points that you can slot in where need be. So that if like shit goes buck wild completely away from anything you thought was going to happen, you can still advance the plot, despite the fact that your players have jumped down a well that you weren't expecting them to jump down. Um, Fuck that be, well. No town in the fucking. You know what? Barovia no longer has wells uh, that no I've determined. Well. We don't need water. Exist. Yeah. Can't possibly have a well. Can't possibly dig. We have no more shovels. So we Fuck don't know guys. how to make wells anymore. Fucking shit. <laughs> uh, audience, for, for context, because I realize not all of you know this story, and I'm just going to run through it really fucking fast so we don't have to cut too much out here in case we want to cut it out. But essentially, I'm running Curse of Strahd for Endeavor instead of a bunch of other TTRPG content creators. I set up this entire this entire thing where they were going to go and start an escort mission. And instead they wandered into the middle of town at midnight, uh, unwalled town in the middle of what is essentially like this hellscape. And instead of going to safety and going to where the beginning of the escort mission started, where they knew it was, they knew that the mission was lying there waiting for them. They decided, Hey, I like wells. Let's go jump down a well. And then I had to, I didn't plan. Well, I just fucking, I literally showed them a map 
of the entire town. They happened to see a well on it. And they were like, hmm, ignore all of these other buildings. Let's look at this hole in the fucking ground. In my defense, I walked up to the well. I cast a stone into the well. And you told me there was a splash and then another splash. Mm -hmm. If you had said that there was a splash, I would have been like, okay, there's water at the bottom of the well and moved on. But you told me that there was a second splash. Because I had to improvise something interesting in the well. And I had an inkling of an idea. Because, like, I I had a concept that was being fleshed out in the background. It just wasn't done yet. And I didn't want to have to, like, have it be a thing where, like, timeline-wise, on the back end, it made sense for that thing to be there the whole time. So... At least you guys, it's still there. I can flesh it out. If you guys ever return to that town, there's a motivation to go back and investigate what happens in the well, and you'll find out what the fuck happens if you decide to not investigate what is in the well. Oh. Oh, dear. Okay. Yeah, there's there's, there's clocks, bitch. Oh, shit. I'm so proud of you. It's clocks. (laughs) I've learned. I listened to the Atlas Loop. (laughs) Oh, what a good podcast. (laughs) So we talked about taking things and tweaking them and making them your own and then putting them back in your world. Um at a scale that's sort of like abstract. I want to talk about taking some big thing and just kind of plopping it down into your world, a big set piece, or in the example that I'm thinking of a dungeon. I am a dweeb and I play a lot of destiny Two, or I, I did until relatively recently when I no longer have time to play video games. But In Destiny 2, they have a concept of raids, and raids in Destiny are six-player activities that are sort of puzzle, battle, adventure dungeons, where you're making your way through some, like, ridiculously well-designed dungeon that along the way has sort of encounters, like stops, that you are either defeating some boss that has some sort of intense mechanics that require all the players to work together and do something different to make the boss vulnerable and then damage them. Uh Or sometimes like a puzzle encounter where there's no real boss, but it's like you versus the room that you're in perhaps. And I love them. I think that they are some of the best examples of game design period. I took one of those raids and ran it in D and D and it was fucking fun. Y'all. Uh huh. Without going through literally the entirety of <laughs> the entirety of a raid of Destiny, which I could literally record a podcast just walking through raids of Destiny, I took from two of my favorite raids in the game. One is called Deepstone Crypt, and one is called Last The Last Wish. I don't know if y'all, if, if you're listening to this and you're like, why is he even talking about Destiny? Isn't that like a like a pew pew space marine game? In The Last Wish, you are literally slaying a dragon. You are you are hunting down and killing the last known remaining wish dragon. Like, that's what you're doing. And that's what that game is doing. You're a fucking poacher in Destiny? Uh, no, the wish dragon was corrupted by a like a god of trickery, but also also sort of the wish dragon was sort of pulling a fast one on that god. Unclear. There's a lot of lore in Destiny, and I'm There's not going to no get into that right now. Vets in Destiny or something and you just were like, "Oh, well, God touched it. Time to put it down. <laughs> yeah, we're just taking the taking the dragon out back. And <laughs> I took encounters from both of them and reformatted them to work as a dungeon. But I started with the fact that these raids are built to kill you a lot. Your team will wipe constantly. You will fuck up. You will run out of time. Someone does something wrong and it team wipes you. That's how they they punish you for getting something wrong. Frequently, it just wipes the team. And so what I did 
was create a wing of our campaign that was essentially in a, I called it the shattered dimension. And it was like time basically stopped and everything around them looked like fractured mirrors and they could die as much as they wanted within this dimension. And every time they did, it just went back to the beginning of this, of, of them entering this dimension. So I created a mechanic for them to be able to experiment and die and try again. And so they went through a series, like a gauntlet of these puzzle encounters that were brutally difficult on purpose and had really op opaque mechanics on purpose, such that the party was working together, figuring these out, figuring out how to optimize and get through these encounters one by one. It was some of the most fun that I think me and any of the players have had at a table purely because everyone got to just lean into their character, being able to just do everything they needed to do and not worry about dying. Cause once they realized, oh, we can die and that's fine. That changes everything. I, I would say, especially when it comes to converting things from an entirely separate game, an entirely separate system into a system that you know and love, it's not as hard as you think to tweak mechanics that already exist and make them fit. Yeah. I want to be clear. I did not test any of this. Like, I, <laughs> I literally right. That's the wrote real DM experience. and tried it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was very much by the seat of my pants. I was figuring out how to run an encounter like this just as just as much as they were figuring out how to solve an encounter like this. And part of the benefit of being able to like have them die over and over again was I got to learn what I should tweak to make it run a little bit smoother each time. I essentially got to play test while we were playing, <laughs> which was a pretty cool way of going about it. I like it a lot, especially when it comes to things where it's like, oh, all of a sudden permadeath is no longer a thing. You can hand wave a lot of like the discrepancies that you'd run into when it comes to what's canon in your world by just being like, oh, yeah, the gods did it. <laughs> you know, like if there's this random dungeon where all of a sudden your party will live forever, you know, they they don't die. They just rogue like respawn. You know, you can just be like, oh, yeah, you know, God of Death uh, doesn't have a, a sway here. You know, hand wave it. Um, if you want more info on gods, look at our first episode, by the way. Uh, episode one. Episode one. First ever. The pilot. We worked so hard on that. It, it was so well received. Such a good episode. I'm still so happy. Y'all have been so kind. Thank you for listening to the Atlas Loom. Yeah, an exploration so, of just how much kind things y'all can say because wow, wowers, wow, this, wowzers. This is the wowers? first full episode we're recording after we've gotten reception from. Yeah, like if we're release. like a little freaking weird right now, it's because we're like we're hyped. Well, now we're doing it, I guess. Like people, <laughs> y'all like us. That's weird. fucking wild. We didn't expect to be liked. Imagine being liked. I feel like when it comes to what I yoink for my world, I tend to go. And especially when it comes to like padding the world full of things, because when I build, I build from macro to micro. Um, and I haven't really talked about this fully, but when it comes to world building, people are often confused on where to start. You can start anywhere. Um, you can start with like a single creature that you want to build a plot around. And then you build the world around that area that that plot takes part in. And then you build like the gods of that area. You can like kind of go micro to macro. I tend to go macro to micro where I start with the gods who built the world and then the world. What do the continents look like? What do the towns look like? And then I go into the plots from there, which means I end up with a lot of blank space that I need to just throw shit into. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that stuff, I'm a lazy DM, you guys. That's my <laughs> whole brand is being a lazy DM and how to make DMing easy, GMing easy. Um, and so what I usually do is I will go into, if not just, you know, straight up, taking people's ideas from subreddits and things like that, where they're like, hey, I came up with this cool thing for my world. You should use it. I will often look at like, and this is much smaller scale than what you and I were just talking about. I will look at art and try and kind of like use that as concepts to drop into my world. 
one of the more famous concepts that I came up with a long time ago and I talked about on TikTok was the concept of a Hydra, which exists in D&D, but I think I came up with this concept by looking at Magic the Gathering card art of Hydras. And I was like, okay, well, I need this random town to have something special in it, in this random part of my world. And I was like, okay, well, let's link it to a Hydra. This is what I'm looking at right now. Let's make this work. And I came up with the concept of, I believe, a Hydra that had been captured by a prior adventuring party. They were hired by the town to capture this Hydra and not kill it. And this Hydra was kept as basically a prisoner and also a food source for this town. Its neck was woven around poles. It was like chained to the ground so it couldn't move. And I think it was a tabaxi village. They would harvest the heads of the Hydra and use it as meat and basically keep it alive on just like a sliver of health. And so that in and of itself, all of a sudden you have a quest, not necessarily an outspoken one. The town won't come up to new visitors, to new adventures and be like, hey, we have this Hydra, by the way, you know, do something about it. The something is already done. The village is happy. The Hydra's not happy. The party's just going to see this. It's just an installment in the world and they have to decide what they want to do about it. It becomes a moral quandary. Do they want to free the Hydra? Do they want to put it out of its misery? Do they want to just leave well enough alone? Do they think it's a fantastic idea? Um, and so I that think all it's a fantastic from... idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, it, it sucks for the Hydra, right? And like, I, mm-hmm. I, I feel bad about that. But harvesting Hydra meat as a renewable food source, yeah, that's so good. And what does Hydra taste like? Chicken. Chicken. Tastes like sky cracking, actually. <laughs> the calamari of the clouds. We all know what sky cracking tastes like, so. But yeah, that all came from art. And so, listener, if you're looking for a way to just kind of pad little parts of your world, you know, just throw in random concepts. What I usually do, um, and I'll do this right now, is if you look up, and especially, you know, when it comes to art, you can look up fantasy art in general. You can go on Pinterest, whatnot. Um, Look at your favorite artists. Just look at, like, things that they've done, landscapes, character art, anything. What I personally do is I go to scryfall.com which is basically a compendium of every Magic the Gathering card that has ever existed. And they have a random button. And I just like smash that random button several times until I come across a concept that I like. Um, So I hit it once and immediately it came up with a card called Jinxed Ring. It's from back in like, oh my God, it's from fucking forever ago based off of the, the, the card art. But just the concept of a Jinxed Ring, this ring that has a curse. And the character art is someone shaking hands with someone else wearing this ring. And the ring is a little sinister looking. And it's like, okay, well, what can I do with that? And then just start riffing off of it. And of course, my world building technique is asking myself questions. So I'm like, okay, well, what does this ring do? What happens when you shake someone's hand wearing this ring? What is the consequence to the person wearing it? What's the consequence to the person you're shaking hands with? Where'd the ring come from? Things like that. And just kind of go down a line of questioning. Um, That's how I do it. I don't know about you, Dev, when it comes to like smaller things, do you have any methods? For small knickknacks and, and objects and whatnot, I mean, I I pull from everything, honestly. I pull from from fantasy movies or other actual plays or literally everything. I'll just yoink left and right. Because when you need to have items, when you need to have just some set dressing, if you have like a random room or whatever that like, and so, you know what, you know, what was a fun scene I can think of? I'll just, you know, essentially regurgitate that for a lot of throwaway stuff. If I, if I am not, if it's not actually like important to the story, I feel like more often than not, I'll just 
insert a movie scene <laughs> or insert insert something from again like avatar or another like a fantasy show that i've got like you know seared into my memory like uh yeah i'll just i'll just pull the uh fisherman guy who's uh in like i think like season three of avatar there's a guy who runs the fish shop with one hat and then changes his hat to a different hat and now he runs a different <laughs> shop and like no one no one says anything about it except for the main party, but none of the other like people in the town acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. That's a fun little gag. Like throw that in. That's a fun NPC. And uh, like to that end, taking entire characters and and bringing them into your world, and especially if you're trying to build a fun cast of characters, taking your favorites from everywhere. When you pull from a whole bunch of different places, it kind of dilutes <laughs> the 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 yoinkage a little bit. You think and so? feels more like bringing together a cast of personalities and and making a new cohesive group of people rather than hey i just wholesale plucked out the cast of this tv show and made that right. these characters yeah for example alongside the fisherman guy from from avatar uh i am a fan of the traveling merchant from resident evil 4 which is if you haven't played the game he is a really well-loved character who inexplicably in, in the in this game that otherwise is all about like the arduous travel through this extraordinarily hostile place filled with zombies this merchant just uh, keeps appearing along your path in very convenient locations and they do not explain how he's able to just be ahead of sure. you all the time as you're making your way through this old locked castle and then you turn the corner after defeating some massive boss and unlocking a door you open the door and there he is waiting <laughs> to take your money and sell you some stuff and also mo most most importantly whenever you walk up to him and start conversation with him he goes what are you buying and that voice line is like iconic i literally took that guy uh, he has a, like a um, he always has a torch next to him, like a like a like a sconce that has blue fire blazing in it. And that's like his if you see like blue fire, that means merchant. Um, and I used that specifically. I don't even know if I don't know if I did blue. I might have done like pink or purple. But essentially, one, using that that unique colored fire thing to draw player attention from far away. So if it's like nighttime, but off in the distance, you see like purple flames they knew like i want to go that way <laughs> yeah. i know i know who's over there uh and then yeah like this person would just appear in places and i liked the fact that it was like my players didn't know why he was appearing in random places and was in places that made no sense for him to be and i had a story reason for that i don't know if that campaign ever actually got to revealing the story reason for it but dude could time travel that's the fun part and oh, he was one of my favorite. That's not how they do it in Resident Evil 4. That's not the reason why. But <laughs> I took the, you know, merchant appearing everywhere. Same guy, always over and over, appearing in every place. Straight up taken from Resident Evil 4, but it, it rules. And you know what the fun part about this entire, basically everything we're talking about in this episode, especially when it comes to implementing things, ideas, and yoking them for your games. Dev, did anyone ever call you out on that? Did anyone ever say, oh my god, this is just the guy from Resident Evil 4? No. Yeah, guys, no one's going to know. No one will ever know. How Players will are they know? so much. That, how will they know? They, <laughs> no they one's going to know. know. No, They're going to no know. No one's going to know. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 again, I talk to my players 
I pull the curtain back a little bit usually, especially towards after a campaign for sure. I like to talk through like here's what you here's what you missed, here's what like would have happened, so on and so forth. It's yeah. very very fun. Um, and I'll tell them like if someone says like where did you where did you come up with that? I usually will will tell them. Well, not usually. I always will. I'm proud to say that I come up with a lot of my stuff my own dang self, but I do pull I don't know probably like thirty to forty percent from inspiration from elsewhere, and so I will tell people like yeah if you enjoyed that i would love for you to enjoy the thing i got it from you'd probably really like it Mm -hmm. uh it's a great way to share what inspires you yeah and give credit where credit's due you know Mm -hmm. we've talked a bit about plots we've talked a bit about like a dungeon we've talked a bit about characters let's maybe talk a little bit about landscape and set pieces and sort of you know the world part of world building (laughs) I, in addition to Destiny Two, <laughs> uh-huh. I I haven't been I haven't played this game as much recently. I wish I had unlimited time to play many more games. Baldur's Gate Three. I should play Baldur's Gate Three. That seems like a game I should play. I have spent a truly, truly egregious amount of hours in RuneScape. Oh yeah, that's a and, thing. Yeah, RuneScape exists. RuneScape is still going strong amazingly there's two versions of it now the old school version and the new version of it and they both are actively maintained and actively have players but i took so much like when i again when i started world building i was much much younger i didn't know where to start i had no real reference points and the 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 main thing that i had sunk time into that was a fantasy world was runescape and so that was the the map that i was most familiar with and so i used that as sort of a template for making what is my longest now longest running world it was originally the first world that i made i've like iterated on it and reworked it and kind of kept it as a living thing for as long as i possibly could to the point that up until recently i was building a video game again in this world that i made originally when i was like i don't know 12 so i looked at the map of runescape and it doesn't make much sense, but, but I looked at sort of the features that they had. They had they had some port towns. They had like a castle town. They had a town that was sort of had like a garrison. I took all these concepts, all these places that were notable within this world and just sort of one to one made my own. And from there was able to then sprawl out of like smaller villages and towns and figuring out my own map and eventually reworking all of it. But it gave me a reference at all i i didn't i I would not have known otherwise how to even start thinking of what do i need in this world like i was i I was starting from zero having that map helped so incredibly much and is it stealing i don't know i was i was recreating the same vibes (laughs) that they had but over time it morphed and changed and you know again i was super young it's not like i was trying to publish a module over time, it has changed and improved and refined and unrecognizable at this point. But yeah, it was originally essentially a clone of RuneScape. And I think that's I think that's perfectly valid. Yeah, you can get even lazier with it. Just fucking taking that entire thing and renaming everything on that map. That's probably enough to make it unrecognizable to most people. <laughs> Like, that's what I do for my, and I'm, again, this is one of those lazy world building tips I have, uh, where I will take concepts from old versions of Dungeons and Dragons, old maps, old creatures, old, even entire modules, which are available on, like, the online versions of Dungeon Magazine, 
God, if you guys haven't looked at Dungeon oh Magazine, God. if you're a D&D nerd, oh my God, you can look at old. They have such like bite-sized little quest hooks, uh, mo- like miniature modules that you can take from old versions of D&D and convert them to 5e with basically no effort. And then I just take it and I rename everything in it. Literally, Fantasy Name Generator should be my homepage at this point. And then that's enough to be like, okay, this is this feels new enough. And it still feels homebrew. And by that point, too, after doing all that work and reading through it that many times, you'll know it. Like, you'll have done your research, you'll have done your studying, and you'll be able to run it effectively just by the process of renaming things in it. And so, like, that's at my laziest. That's how I yoink. <laughs> we love a lazy yoink we here. We love a lazy yoink. Just casual we... yoink on a Sunday afternoon. Just quick yoink. Just a fucking... <laughs> Just a quick afternoon yoink. Casual. Hey, so you know how I have talked a lot about taking things from like video games as inspiration? Mm-hmm. I want to talk about taking something from a video game as inspiration. So cool. uh, I know this is a new, this is just new ground for us to yeah, try. So Zelda, which is a series that you don't care for. Don't I'm not a Nintendo played. girly. Yeah. is the thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not going to give you shit for that. because The fine. audience will. You don't the have to. Will. You've already called me out. You fucking, you've thrown me to the wolves here. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not calling you out. I'm just acknowledging I'm not judging, a fact. I'm just saying other people will. Yeah. No hate here. Anyway, in uh, in Zelda, which is a game about Link, uh, <laughs> we, we frequently find ourselves in a place called the Lost Woods, which is a forest that is, it's different in every game, but it always has the same theme of you have to figure out how to navigate here. There's there, there's something that is not that is going to prevent you from progressing until you figure out the trick to navigating. For example, in Ocarina of Time, the Lost Woods is a series of like square rooms that each have a, a exit to the next square room in a big grid. And the if you go through the wrong path to the next room, you will appear back at the start of the Lost Woods. You have to figure out which way to go by sort of like walking around the room and the correct direction has the music for the area playing most clearly. Like you can like hear an extra song playing when you are near the correct exit. And so you have to like listen for the for the music as you're like navigating through the woods. I took that and made my own kind of version of it called the Everwoods. That is essentially a forest that people go into and don't come out of. When you're in there, you have to understand, again, you have to figure out the the trick to actually navigating, which I'm not going to say because I'm probably going to be using this in a future thing that people in this podcast may or may not be playing in. But you people uh, in this podcast, there's no one here. The other people, the many, many people. Gerard is here. All right. Gerard. We've already. Where's Gerard? Gerard. He's slacking, he took lunch. Fucking Gerard. I swear that guy. I'm going to put him on a performance improvement plan. He's we'll talk to HR. Not working out. Yeah. We'll, well, yeah. Gerard's uh, also HR, though, so... Dr- fuck, that really puts a... Really throws think a wrench in our plans. of interest, yeah. I have done a lot with that concept of, of woods that you enter that have some secret to getting back out because it just makes a great set piece. You put it next to a town. That entire town is like, don't go there. Don't go to those woods. It's bad. Or, hey, these two Starcroft, Starcrossed lover teens or whatever from our village went on a romantic tryst into the woods thinking that they would be safe and now they're gone and we haven't seen them forever. Can you go fetch them, adventuring party? But also you can't leave the woods when you go in. So like, here's your quest. It's just, you can do a whole lot with it. And it's the simple concept of, oh, you go in and there's a secret to get out. 
but that builds out into so much more. Yeah. Taking something, boiling it down, breaking it out, renaming it, changing it, whatever, and then adding more details on top. That's really all just, that's the gist of this episode here, really. One thing that I do a lot in my games, um, and especially if you're having trouble finding relevant things to yoink from other forms of media is you can steal from the exact same form of media in the exact same game. A lot of what I do in, and again, I'm going to talk about D&D because I am a D&D girly. That's how I got my start. That's how I continue on. Um, also, wizards, sponsor us. Uh, <laughs> what I do, especially for creatures, is just reskin things. Um, so, for example, I had this encounter in uh, Curse of Strahd's Death House, right? As written, it's a shambling mound. It's boring. Just changing the flavor of that creature. Sometimes and being I like, feel like a shambling mound. Dude, yeah. <laughs> Especially once that medication wears off, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I... So something as simple as taking the material that the creature is made of and changing it into something else. Uh, by default, a shambling mound is what? Like a collection of twigs and shit. I changed it so it was a pile of gore. Old bones and liver and, you know, sinew and things like that. And that already, that is interesting. That sticks out to your characters, especially if they know the game system already. Uh, things like magic, you know, spells, changing how they look is very much a mechanic in D&D and something that they actually encourage in the books, especially Tasha's, you know, so making it so your magic missile, or actually Lua has this thing. Do you want to talk about what Lua does? Yeah, uh, in, in okay, so the character that I play in Diana's campaign, his name is Lua. He is a moon sorcerer, lunar sorcerer, um, and he has these, uh, well, he has a journal. He can't talk. He's mute and uh, has a journal that he uses to write his spells into, tear a page out of the journal, and that's how he casts his spells. And so with Magic Missile, for example, he pulls out his journal, pulls out his, his handy-dandy quill, writes something interesting in the journal, tears up the page, and when he crumples it up and then, like, throws it, that causes these beams of, like, blue sort of, like, lunar energy to fire out from the page that once held the runes that he just wrote on. Reskinning stuff is just... It's simple and you are you're you're kind of like not really yoinking a concept from anything else. You're not doing any major work to get it done. You're just reflavoring and and making it unique through that. I also tend to physically rebuild my my creatures. So like uh having a concept of like a druid who is evil and they have like these really warped versions of uh of beasts that they turn into so instead of turning into a normal bear it looks like a bear made of shadow or a bear that has like spines sticking out of its back or something like that like that's so simple and such an easy way to make it a little bit more unique but you're not you're not deviating from the actual mechanics of the source material you're still working within whatever system you're in yeah absolutely and outside of DD, in other systems especially ones that don't come with a setting and come with a monster compendium that you can take and reskin and whatnot, you pretty much have to steal. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's no reality in which you're going to completely populate a world from the ground up with absolutely 100% original ideas that have never been done before. You're going to have yeah. to take something from somewhere. If you're using, like, what, elves and dwarves, like, you're stealing from Tolkien, like, you're Dude. already there. 
yeah, nothing's original anymore. Even fucking The Matrix, right? It was considered one of the most groundbreaking movies in existence, still is, was my favorite movie ever up until John Wick John came Wick. Out. <laughs> look, look, <laughs> I really like that movie. I have them all on Blu-ray. I don't have a Blu-ray player. I just have them. I, uh, th- th- you, <laughs> fucking what? felt. Fucking felt, though. Like, I, I have Blu-rays of some stuff that I care about, and I guess I have a... Do I have a and Xbox, I guess, counts, but like... I guess the PS5? Yeah. Could? I'm not going to fucking watch it. It takes so much effort to watch a Blu-ray. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. I 100%. I'm going to stream it. I'm going to... Yeah. I would I'd rather spend $4 to, to rent it uh, than try and set up my fucking Xbox again. And <laughs> But still, it's it's like, that's how much I like John Wick. Don't fucking make fun of me for it, I, okay? John no, Wick's uh, sponsor I'm not us. making fun of you for it. I'm I'm <laughs> agree. I have the same... I'm, I've got digital skeletons in the form of <laughs> Blu-rays in my closet in the form of my media center (laughs) (laughs) anyway the matrix right fucking groundbreaking film you know brought in a bunch of concepts that were incredibly progressive at the time brought into light yes like kung fu um it's just the allegory of the like plato's cave you know and it's very obvious that that's what it is once you recognize that but like nothing is unique anymore and that's something that I guess is is worth mentioning when it comes to yoiging ideas. If we get really esoteric with it, right? Like the hero's journey is God, yeah. A thing. This is a studied field, right? Like storytelling has structure and like you can break that structure absolutely, but like more often than not you can find those main story beats basically everywhere. And I'm not saying that that gives you a, a blank check to just say, well, everything has already been done and nothing can possibly be new. So I'm going to steal everything and claim it for my own. Or I'm also not telling you that everything has been done because not everything has been done. It's just most things have been done to the point that if you try to set out to do everything completely new, you're probably going to. I don't want to say you're going to fail, but you're setting yourself up to have a very hard time. And I yeah. just don't think it's necessary. And I don't think anybody would faults you for including non-original stuff in your stories in fact it's a good thing it gives people a sense of of attachment and understanding and implicit recognition of the scenarios that they're finding themselves in players are notoriously bad at everything and (laughs) and speak for yourself (laughs) players are notoriously i'm gonna jump headfirst down a fucking well Okay, uh, that we, we <laughs> clarified that was a daydream. Uh, that was a daydream because you died and we had to retcon it. Well, no, it was a daydream because I died because I didn't know that I didn't have a long rest. Because you're bad at being a player. Because I'm bad at being a player. So players are famously bad at everything, which is to say players are bad at like picking up on the extremely subtle hints that you probably think are less subtle than you think they are. Yeah. Giving them a template to work with, giving them a basis of like, okay, we're in the uh the town general store and there is a merchant here who's willing to haggle on anything in the store. He'll he'll, you know, haggling is his life, you know, the over the overeager merchant character. Like that puts them into a sense of comfort and and tells them like, okay, we're in a scene now where it's all about commerce gambling or you know striking a deal i know i'm supposed to probably put on a charming character here and talk to this npc and so on and so forth it's so basic right like it's so simple merchant character but conveying that tone 
instantly and implicitly by leaning on a well-worn trope can really help keep things smooth in your storytelling. And you can always put a twist on it. And you can always lure them into a false sense of security by leaning on a trope and then turning it on its head. But don't shy away from tropes. Yeah. For more info on that, especially when it comes to NPCs, check out episode two. Um, the rest of this podcast is going to be me plugging other episodes of the podcast that we've already done. But we do talk about that quite a bit where it's like, how do you make an NPC that follows a trope or doesn't? And when is that useful? When is that not? It's a really good episode, you guys. They're all good episodes. We're perfect. They're all great episodes. We've never fucked up ever. Uh, ever. Um, <laughs> definitely ignore all of the scrap episodes that are out for our Gilded World Weavers on our website. Subscribe. Uh, that show evidence of us fucking up several times. That doesn't exist. Don't worry about that. Don't look, don't look behind the fucking curtain. Um, what curtain? I don't even know where the curtain is. So let's weave some wishes. If you have a question, a comment, an inquiry, a, a something that you would like us to talk about on this show, you can send us a wish. Wish at the atlasloom.com. Shoot us an email. Include some information, your question. Let us know your name, your pronouns, all that good stuff. We would love to feature you on the podcast. This first question comes from the excellent Brodo Swaggins. Hello, hey. hello. As a person who has only been a player for D&D &D but is wanting to DM, I am wondering, have you ever had to punish a player for doing something stupid? And do you prefer doing the punishment as a poetic justice kind of style or just a the player gets in a strange accident and that ends them kind of way? If so, any stories of these punishments? I think... And I think this is a common answer for a lot of DMs or people who have DMing experience is you're not like you are a judge of the game, but you're not supposed to be a judge of your characters necessarily. Like they're going to step out of line, but you don't want to think about it as like, a, oh, my characters did something I didn't want them to do. Now I have to punish them. Now I have to instill some sort of retribution for it. I have to take them down a peg. Um, I wouldn't think of it in such black and white terms. Instead, I would just... And again, I run realistic games, so this is kind of just what I do, is I make sure the consequences make sense for what they've done. If they kill a major NPC, then inherently the punishment would be the same as it would be in the real world. You all of a sudden have law enforcement on your ass. Uh, their family, you know, starts looking for this missing person. You've lost any quests and any rewards from those quests related to that character. If they're like a major NPC that is woven into the plot and they are like, like a, a load-bearing NPC, um, what are the consequences of that NPC being gone? Just kind of think about it in terms of what would realistically happen as opposed to being like, you know, in rare cases, you might want to have a bounty hunter style thing where a rival adventuring party is hired to track down your adventuring party and bring them to justice. And then you would have your standard, like, you know, role play out the justice system in your world. But again, that's very in world. That's very what would actually happen as opposed to, all of a sudden, your characters get smote out of nowhere, uh, you know, by some divine being just because some divine being didn't like what they did. You don't want to get too meta with it. Really just make sure that the consequences are realistic for what they did. Um, I don't think this is an issue that happens very often in games either. I feel like people always try and, like, plan for this sort of eventuality, but I think most players kind of just want to go along with the story. I 100% endorse the use in-world consequences. You're not always going to have a table full of players that are taking everything super seriously or 
treating your world as a real thing as opposed to, you know, oh, I've played a lot of Skyrim. I'm going to put a I'm going to sneak over to the guard and put a bucket over their head so they can't see me while I pickpocket. It's on you to remind them that that's not the kind of game that we're playing. And you can do that, as Diana said, by just invoking real life consequences. The guards are like, what the hell are you doing with that bucket? And they attack you. Mm hmm. I have absolutely dealt with players that thought it was really funny to just cast fireball in the middle of this store because they had a disagreement with the with the store clerk or the store clerk didn't want to haggle or something. And they're like, fine, I cast fireball. And it's like, OK, do you understand what you're saying right now? You are about to destroy this place, kill somebody like an innocent person in a random town that is going to know you did that and you are never going to be welcome here again. And like, if this town is under stewardship from a larger magistrate, you're not welcome in any of those places. I, for a while, on a new party especially, will give them the, are you sure? The, the <laughs> are you, do you really want to do that? Because I don't want to crush fun. I love, I love a good, like, let's go down a quick thought experiment of like a scenario. Wouldn't that be funny? Okay, cool. Let's get back to the game. That's always fun. We're here to have fun. The point is we're sitting at the table to have fun. And, and, and why not just let your imagination run wild for a second before reeling it back in? But for the purposes of actually running a story, it helps to not have players that are randomly trying to fireball things. So pretty quickly, if a player is just pushing at the, the seams or like trying to find where they can mess with you, you control the entire world and throw whatever you want at them. I take a approach kind of inspired by uh like grand theft auto having the the wanted levels oh yeah in my i don't i don't share this with the players but for my own for my own planning i keep track of the current essentially notoriety of the party in the area that they're in if they reach a notoriety above i use one to five if they reach a notoriety above a three uh so a four or a five in any one given area that will trigger a it, given the resources from that area a hunt that will that that it doesn't matter where they are in the world they are being actively hunted by either bounty hunters or like the you know town guard or whatever or some wing of the guard it doesn't usually get there but i want to but i use it to add in a you now have a persistent thing to deal with because of the decisions that you made in the past and that's sticking with you you're not getting rid of that unless you can in fiction resolve it you have to own up to your actions. Three and below is just different degrees of get out of my town. <laughs> but I do want to emphasize that it's not about necessarily punishing the players. And if a player is consistently just doing weird shit, you just talk to them outside of the session and tell them like, hey, this is just not how this table works. Yeah. And we could do an entire episode on things like the meta side of being a, a GM. Um, that goes a little bit away from world building, but it's still irrevocably tied to what we're doing at our tables. Things about, you know, when it comes to consent forms, session zeros, talking to your players, dealing with issues above the table, that could be a whole separate episode. But if it does stray into that territory, it's an entirely different thing. In-game, yeah, don't don't think of it as punishment. Think of it as natural consequences. If you're a really good, like, if you're down to do it too, you can turn it into a whole side quest. Like if someone throws a fireball in the middle of a town, uh, all of a sudden, you have these. Oh God, what are they called uh, in Dragon Age? The people, the the people who chant, you know, mage hunters. There's like a, a sect of them. It's not the paladins. Is that 
I truly do not remember. Oh man, you can have like a, a series of a special a special force, a squad of mage hunters come after them and then all of a sudden they have to figure out how to make peace with that. There's going to be consequences for their existing relationships elsewhere in town. If you're running a faction system where your party has favor or not favor, so kind of like the infamous system of notoriety, like you said, positive or negative, like how is that affected? Are people going to step in and try and help them? Are they not? So those are like the more advanced reactions that like GMs who know what they're doing and aren't afraid to develop new plots out of whatever their characters go off and do and kind of do those branching storylines can kind of take on but in general absolutely yeah, work with and them. and as we said in the NPCs episode which um, you should watch which you should you should listen to you cannot watch it there is yeah. no video oh yeah yeah uh but uh as we said in that episode Having an NPC on hand that can team wipe your party need be or threaten a team wipe. Useful little tool in the pocket. If they hit level five notoriety, I essentially just have a character who would show up and obliterate them. But thankfully, we never got there. Thank you, Brodo, for your question. Appreciate it. Let's move on. Hey. This next question comes to us from Jason. Jason. Who was at the PAX U panel that you <gasps> did, Diana. Nice. So hello, Jason. And Hi. also, thank you for being there at the panel that I I wasn't on the panel, but thank you for being there. I'm thanking you on behalf of Diana. Yeah. <laughs> I will also thank you on behalf of Diana. Jason asks, and I'm just going to use the, the thank you, Jason, for uh, bolding the, the primary question here. Uh, I'm just going to read the bolded part. How can I cut down on preparation time while still feeling prepared? And I think this is the right episode to have asked that question. Yeah, most of the answer is going to be steal ideas from other sources. Yoink, so your fuck. Yoink ideas. Yoink ideas uh, from other sources. Reflavor them lightly as you need to. Reskin them. Rename NPCs. Reflavor creatures. And then just kind of have that on hand. And that does the majority of the work for you. I feel like when a lot of people get into DMing, they feel like they have to world build everything from scratch. They have to make entire continents worth of things and populate them 100% fully flesh things out before they feel ready to start playing. And that's just not the case. Really, it's a lot of GMing can be very similar to, uh, you know, that episode of Rick and Morty where they're on that like holodeck type thing and they're trapped in this, this holographic world that builds itself around them depending on what direction they decide to walk in like they just have that immediate area around them fleshed out mm -hmm. that's all you need when it comes to world building do you have any quick prep tips yeah i largely agree definitely you do not need to flesh out things that are not going to be anywhere near the beaten path for sure yeah. and even for stuff on the beaten path like you can really hand wave basically everything except for the like core characters, the core NPCs, the core MacGuffins uh, and like major set pieces. But if you're making a town, like you don't need to say what's in every single building in every single town. You can make a big neighborhood. That's just like, this is a residential district. And like probably nothing is going to happen there. But on the off chance that a player is insistent on going to the residential district and checking out each individual house, they will hopefully understand that they're being a problem. And if things are getting, <laughs> getting a little bit less detailed, maybe they should move away from here. Like there's nothing interesting going on here. That yeah. said, you can definitely have, as we've talked about before, 
like a roll table to you know if they knock on the door you just roll a couple dice and get a name and a race and be like a uh a short half elf woman opens the door she has roll some dice uh long orange hair and roll dice blue eyes and she says hello in a roll dice raspy voice and like that's <laughs> that lets you basically just say like okay here's just a bunch of buildings whatever it does not matter until we get there as diana said like this doesn't exist until it does. And yeah. you can really approach that for everything as, as comfortable as you can be like you, it's up to, it's up to each individual person, how much on the spot ad living you're willing to do. Also, of course, depends on your table and how patient they're willing to be. If you were to say like, I need a second to flesh this out real quick. <laughs> Just remember to take notes afterwards of like, cause I always fucking forget to do this. I pluck things from random tables all the time. And then I forget to note that that was the name I used for that person in this building. Cause on the off chance they come back, you want to make sure it's consistent. Um, so that's something that I feel like for people forget to do. And by people, I mean me, the people is me. The but number of funny. NPCs that I just ad libbed and then completely forgot. And my players very much did not yeah. forget. It's, it's painful. You need, yeah. you need to write that down because you have no control over who your players are going to latch onto. If you God. invoke a random NPC, there's like a 50% chance that they're going to be in the finale of your <laughs> campaign. <laughs> yeah. The old Bobble and the Goblin situation. God. Great question, though. Yes, absolutely. Question. Thank you, Jason. Our last question for today comes from Valdez. Thank you. Thank you. This is a bit of a longer one. I'm going to try to summarize as best I can because it includes a bit of a description of a campaign as well as a prompt to ask about a part of that campaign. So here we go. Valdez is working on a campaign that is set in a typical high fantasy world, think Faerun, and a level five adventuring party is coming across some uh, odd dragon's egg and then some shit goes down. Turns out this was a time dragon and it yeets the party thousands of years into the future. They are now finding themselves in a cyberpunky kind of world, and they were just recent, up until very recently, standard high fantasy adventurers. So they're like, what the hell is going on? Where are we? And why is everything different? The crux of all of this is that the gods who were around 8,000 or so years ago are still around in the future, but the world has kind of moved past them. Those gods no longer have much of a following, and... Valdez is using a, a little thing from our first episode about how, and this is from Diana, about how gods can be made powerful based on how many followers they have. So these gods have lost essentially all of their followers. They're still around, but they're just dudes now in this world. The question from Valdez is, I wanted to know how you would handle this type of atrophied divinity. Amazing. Just so cool. Amazing Such a good phrase. phrase. Holy God. That's the next podcast. Yeah. Welcome to our welcome to the podcast. Uh, Atrophy divinity. Oh, my goodness. OK, I uh, I wanted to know how you would handle this type of atrophy divinity and whether you think the campaign idea is a decent one. I want to start by saying, yes, it's a good idea. Time skips. Always fun. Do it. Uh, but Diana, I want to kick it over to you. How would you handle atrophy divinity? If that's like the main point of the campaign, think about like what people do to regain favor with gods in real life. You know, how do people spread the good word of whatever deity they happen to follow and kind of use that as a guide for what your quests would be? 
Um, maybe there's some evil gods out there that are doing it with the whole like fire and brimstone conquering method. Like you will submit to this god or else. Uh, meanwhile, your players, if they're on the good side of things, might want to ally themselves with specific gods. Those gods become their patrons, essentially, and then beseech them to do a bunch of things like, you know, reclaim this artifact of mine that was lost centuries ago and use that to show people proof of my existence and regain favor and inspire faith. Uh, you know, gather resources to protect this holy site from invasion uh, and restore it to what it once was. You can kind of think about how basically any sort of divine quest, just reflavor it for a cyberpunk modern setting. And there you go. You have this overarching campaign. The only other thing that I would note, especially when it comes to the gods, is making sure you're having some sort of system for faction favor. Uh, and I know a lot of systems kind of have this built in. I know D&D has rules for it where the more you do in your god's name and the more your god and your, you know, the, the faith as a whole favors you, the more you get boons from your god. You have more abilities unlocked through your network that you've made of these people who all follow you in order to follow the god. And making sure that there's the there's like positive consequences of completing these quests. So there's like a driving reason to do it beyond just, oh yeah, this this guy who says he's a god asked me to do this thing. Making sure that there's rewards for that that are proportional to how much work your characters are putting in for this, this end goal. Uh, that is a good place to start. I really like the idea that there could be a cleric or a paladin or whoever in this party and they get yeeted into the future and their powers are just on the fritz. Yeah. And their personal quest is to find their god who is now, let's say that you were a uh, cleric to a god of the harvest and you go and find them and now they're literally just some hermit somewhere that is just like tending to a garden and like that's all that like, that's the only the only thing this god has left like they have no followers left but they are the god of the harvest and so they just have a garden and like their whole shit is just this garden and now it's on you to restore this this sad lonely person back to their godhood so that you can actually have your powers back i i like the idea of having gods become broken that's really cool i think that's really rad I, I i have done that in some campaigns and i think that it lets you build a really cool character if you have a a, a person who was a god or rather like an entity like a, a literal god like an abstract entity that then like maybe manifested as a as a human or a humanoid at some point during their decline to maybe try to directly intervene with their own decline and failed and now they don't have enough power to go back to being their abstract concept. They're trapped as a humanoid and essentially are slowly becoming mortal. That's a hell of a premise, my guy. <laughs> mm -hmm. As for their power, I would think that they would have essentially the, the way I would describe it would be like layer actions, like 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 or not, not layer actions. What's it? What's it called when a, a monster has area effects? Yeah, is it just so, called area effects? Uh, regional effects. Regional, regional effects. Yeah. It is layer effects, I think, in D&D. I think it would be it would make a lot of sense for these gods to what like whatever innate power they still have, however little it may be, alter the landscape around them to sort of lean into their vibe. So again, like maybe that the the god of the harvest is in a otherwise, you know, if this is like super far into the future, kind of cyberpunky, kind of dystopian, maybe there's a lot of like desert 
in the world. I don't know what world you're working with. I don't know what it's all gonna look like. Maybe a lot of it is infertile, like you can't do anything with it. But in the middle of this desert, there's either an oasis or a forest or meadow that has no business otherwise being in this climate. But it's there because this god is there and their impact on the immediate area around them is allowing for a lush forest to appear in the middle of this arid waste. That would let you design some fun sets and also give players a hook into, oh, that seems interesting. I'm going to go in that direction. Another thing we were thinking about is, and this is entirely off the rails of what you were asking, dear reader, dear listener, but imagine if your players were the gods mm -hmm. and then you called your campaign Atrophy Divinity. How fucking cool would that be? And all of a sudden, they're not ask, being asked to do all these things. They're motivated to do it themselves and their powers grow with how many more followers they gain and they have to decide how they want to go about it. Absolutely. Yes, 100%. I want to run that now. Yeah. I'm to steal that idea. Yeah, imagine like... You. I, I'm not trying, we're not, okay. I don't think that we're trying to, to tell you to completely change your entire campaign. It would be cool if you did though. It, it's a it's a great <laughs> premise. It's a great premise and I like it a lot. You should absolutely run it how, how you want to run it. But yeah. dovetailing, like, you know, building on what Diana just said, like imagine, yeah, a bunch of gods, like like they're, they are actually gods uh, and they are just sitting around being like, I'm so good at everything. And then maybe something breaks. Right. Like maybe maybe another god comes along and is tired of the status quo or whatever and just like destroys, like kills the god of time or something and sends you all flying out of your little like comfortable, you know, god realm and into okay. this world where you have no power. You have no no followers here. And now you're back to a level. You're level one. Yesterday you were a god. Now you're level one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and i'm sure it's been done before i guarantee oh, someone yeah. probably one of our friends has an actual play i'm pretty sure i've heard like fragments of people talking about this sort of thing in their games that they've run absolutely um, it's it's a really cool concept especially if you let your players decide what they're gods of and then basically scale everything else in the world down so like you start at level one if you're level 20 you are a god and so like that's what you have to contend with and then the scale is set out for you that's in D, &D though i don't know what you're running but in any case Great question. Amazing concept. Really cool threads of thought coming out of that. Very. Threads. Very weaving. Threads. Weave. Wave. Branding. Woven threads of the loom? wishes. Atlas looms. Atlas wishes. Yeah. Welcome back to the Atlas wish. <laughs> the Atlas loom for wish. <laughs> the Alibaba loom. Goodness. <laughs> All right, well, those were our wishes for today. If any one of you guys listening right now has something that you want to ask of two absolutely experienced expert world weavers such as ourselves, uh, or if you have anything else to say regarding the podcast where you have episode ideas, things you want to touch on, things you want advice on, let us know. Send us an email to wish at theatlasloom.com. That's W-I-S-H at theatlasloom.com. We're always happy to hear from you guys. And this segment's going super well so far. Y'all have amazing questions, so yeah, keep them coming. Seriously. We've got very good baseline here. Yeah. Before we wrap up this episode, Dev and I do have a couple quick announcements. The first and foremost of which being the fact that we each got media badges to go to PAX East, uh, which is going to be in March of 2024. Um, I believe it's March 21st through 24th, right? I believe that is accurate. 
over in Boston. Uh, we were just at PAX Unplugged, so this is super exciting that we do it all over again. Uh, in fact, we have a whole episode talking about PAX Unplugged and doing a little debrief, just very casual, uh, full-length almost episode of us just talking about how it went. Spoiler alert, it went amazing. Yeah. Uh, but for those Gilded World Weavers <laughs> who have subscribed at the $5 a month level on our website, theatlasloom.com, you can go check that out right now. Uh, and hopefully we'll be able to do more of those in the future now that we're going to more cons and stuff. So if you guys happen to be in the Boston area and are attending PAX East, we'd love to see you. As always, you can come say hi to us anytime if you see a girl with blonde hair streaks wandering around with a dude in a beanie. Um, that's us. Come say hi. Am I wrong? You're not wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> any dude in any beanie <laughs> yeah dude we we passed by someone else in a beanie at pax unplugged and i was like dev you gotta fight that man you gotta, you gotta take him out there can only be one we've got a little ways until then and we have several episodes of the atlas loom between now and pax east that we are looking forward very much to recording and releasing for all of y'all until then my name is endeavorance you can find everything I do at endeavorance.camp. I am streaming on Twitch at twitch.tv slash endeavorance.tv. And I post on TikTok pretty often and on YouTube and all that stuff. Everything is findable. Endeavorance.camp. Diana, Hi. I've never known where you are anywhere. I've never met you and I don't know who you are. Can you tell That's me okay. about yourself and how I can find out more about you? Yeah, uh, my name is Diana Fay. I'm better known as Diana of the Rose on every platform. I'm mostly on TikTok doing a lot of the same thing we do here at the Atlas Loom, a lot of GMing advice. Mine is more specific to D&D because I'm a D&D girly at heart. Um, but I'm over on TikTok and then also on Twitch three days a week. Uh, everything I do is under at Diana of the Rose on all platforms. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of The Atlas Loom. Our paths will cross again soon, but in the meantime, keep on weaving your world.